Welcome back to The Doctor Is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. I'm Dana Swedan, Dr. Saba's producer. For today's episode, the doctor will be in the lecture hall. Last week, Dr. Greenhouse attended University of Arizona's CEAC short course, and after accepting this year's mission award, congratulations, she got the chance to catch up with a few of the students and speakers about their work in CEA. This week, we're sharing her interview with Megan Kane, PhD student working in the Lunar Mars Greenhouse Facility. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Doctor Is In. I'm your host, Nadia Saba, and I am here at the University of Arizona visiting Megan Kane, who is a second semester PhD candidate at, in biosystems engineering at the University of Arizona. And I am with her at the Lunar Mars Greenhouse facility. What we're looking at right now is a pink bubble and a white bubble <laughs> of plants growing under, I guess, pink lights and white lights. And it's really cool to see these plants. They, it's mostly leafy greens. I see some vining crops, but we're gonna talk to Megan a little bit more about what she's doing. So Megan, welcome. Thank you, it's, it's exciting to be on the show with you guys. I'm glad that you guys were able to come and look forward to chatting. Awesome, well, I really appreciate your time with me today. I know you guys are busy with the short course. So tell me a little bit, how did you get interested in the controlled environment agriculture and specifically the Lunar Mars Greenhouse? Well, ever since I was little, I wanted to be a farmer. And when I was 16, I decided the location of my farm would be on Mars. Nice. So, um, having a farm on Mars, in essence, you need to have a contained environment because otherwise you'd be dead. You can't breathe the atmosphere. There's not enough of it and there's definitely not enough oxygen. So, Mars is the location of the farm, so it needs to be contained. I've worked in the space industry for the better part of a decade. I'm fascinated with human space flight. My goal is to actually go to Mars. So, I've uh, transitioned into working on this system, which is related to biogenic life support, uh, because it is an essential element of long-term colonization or long-term habitats on another celestial body like the moon or Mars, because long-term we need sustainable food development um, and sustainable uh, air cleaning and water cleaning processes. So that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> so what have been what have you learned about growing plants using controlled environment agriculture? And what is going to be especially challenging for, you know, a terrestrial greenhouse versus one that's on Mars? Oh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, things that are going to have to be different in a terrestrial greenhouse versus what you'd see on the moon or what you'd see on Mars. One of the biggest differences between uh, the earthbound systems or the terrestrial systems and moon and Mars is gravity. Gravity is different. Uh, and water, which is how we transport nutrients to plants and such, behaves really differently in microgravity mm. and in lunar gravity. I actually did a lunar gravity experiment through one of my citizen science projects where we uh, tested how water behaves in lunar gravity on a parabolic flight. And it was really, really cool. So and what does it do? It gloops like, uh, like you have like really thick, uh, gloopy molasses. Water? Water. Interesting. Yeah, and it's sort of gloopy, but it also is sort of floaty. It's really weird. Huh. So 
or you know, it's sort of like a lava lamp. You know how things move in a lava lamp? Yeah. Really like that slow, viscous movement? Sort of like that. Interesting. So we know that when we do a hydroponic system, which is what most of the controlled environment agriculture is based on, and hydroponics, hydro is the primary element, so it's all about water because that's how we get the nutrients to them that and the oxygen and everything. So with the water behaving differently, obviously that's gonna be a huge challenge for growing plants on another uh, another celestial body where there's less gravity. And I'm, and I'm assuming <laughs> you don't necessarily want like a solid media when you're up in space? So you can use, um, we don't know if we can use regolith, which regolith is what we call the soil on say the moon or Mars. Oh. We don't call it soil because on Earth, soil is a mix of organic and inorganic elements. Regolith is all inorganic elements. Hmm. Like uh, rock wool? Uh, so rock wool is inorganic, but when we say regolith, we mean basically the part of soil that is just like ground up rocks. Okay. So, so we don't know yet if... We don't know yet. We do know that Mars, for example, has a high concentration of perchlorates. We don't know what that will do to plant growth. Interesting. Is anyone studying that yet? Uh, there are people looking into that, actually. Okay. Florida Tech, I think. No, Florida Inst... One of the Florida colleges <laughs> is working on that. I don't remember which one. <laughs> In Florida! <laughs> They're using simulated Martian regolith to grow tomatoes. They've got this, like, thing with Heinz or something about Martian tomato? Oh, Martian yes. Martian ketchup or something? Of course, yes. That's great marketing <laughs> right there. <laughs> so what are you studying specifically? Uh, I'm specifically focusing on a bioregenerative life support systems, uh, most specifically the plant element of a bioregenerative life support system. So that's What does that mean exactly? <laughs> All right, so in a bioregenerative life support system, which means that you're mimicking the, uh, mimicking the natural order of how you uh, take uh, carbon from the atmosphere, make food and materials, and then process the whole like cycle of food, waste, uh, and then back into food. So we're kind of closing the that loop. That closed loop. Okay. So it's uh, called an ECLIS system, which is a closed loop uh, environmental control system, and a bioregenerative life support system is a part of that, where we mimic what you see on Earth, the biological cycle on Earth, where we go all the way around. So the plant-based section is where you're focused on using photosynthesis to take the carbon dioxide that's been exhaled and, uh, and turning that back into oxygen and where you're using water that has nutrients in it that have been reclaimed from waste. Okay. So that's in a nutshell what bioregenerative life support is. Those are the two main elements. There's a lot of complexities to it that we don't want to go into. <laughs> So if you're just talking about CO2 and oxygen, is there like a rule of thumb for how many plants per person you would need to convert CO2 there's, and oxygen? There's a few calculations on that. It depends on the type of plant. It depends on your the cycle of development because when plants are growing quickly or when they're creating fruit, they are actually producing uh, more um, more oxygen because they're growing quickly. It's during that photosynthesis process where you take the where the plant starts growing that you gain the uh, you gain the uh, oxygen. What most people don't realize is that when the lights are turned off because the photosynthesis isn't going, they're inhaling oxygen. They're bringing mm -hmm. they're respiring. They're bringing in oxygen and they're exhaling carbon dioxide. So you kind of have to watch the balance of the day-night cycle and the plant growth uh, area. 
when you have seedlings, seedlings aren't generating a lot of, <laughs> seedlings don't generate a lot of oxygen. Mature plants do, and plants that are growing quickly do. So it has to do largely with how quickly they're growing. So, um, so answer, it varies. <laughs> of course, of course. So. Is there one type of plant, I mean, if, if I had to pick between say leafy greens and a vining crop like tomatoes or cucumbers or peppers, is there one that is more sustainable in terms of that CO2 oxygen cycle? Is there one you would choose over the other? We don't have enough research to make that determination yet. And that's sort of where I wanna go with my research is focusing on how do we get that data to make those calculations? Okay. So. My research is all about modeling and using data from the Mars Lunar Greenhouse and a few other controlled environment facilities, uh, generating a way to simulate the models based on what we, data we do have. Well, there's a lot of data out there in a variety of formats from a lot of different uh, space industry experiments in uh, Russia's BIOS project, uh, Europe's Melissa project, Japan has a project, China has a lunar palace, and then we have Mars to the greenhouse and then there NASA had a project running from like 2000 to something I forget I forget when it ran but it ran in for about 20 years why so, do we want to grow plants in space why, why not just take all the food with us uh, that's a lot of food <laughs> <laughs> the biggest constraints in space flight are mass and volume uh, followed quickly by crew time so in terms of an operational uh, uh, so you want plants that would also be easy to grow? You Is would want plants that are easy to grow, yes. Grow themselves? <laughs> Basically grow themselves, don't require a lot of crew input. You want a system that doesn't require a lot of crew time, which if you do that through automation, or you do that through an incredibly simple system that doesn't require much crew time, that those are, those are trade-offs that you make when you're designing your system. Uh, a system like the Mars Lunar Greenhouse, when you approach it from a systems engineering perspective, you have to balance what's best for say producing oxygen, what's best for producing food mass, what's best for limiting crew time, and you basically make a trade to a trade-off analysis to decide which parts of that, which ones are you gonna focus on most. And even if something may not be the best for one area, it may make the others balance out better. Mm. So you make a choice to do not the best in one, but that makes it a ba more balanced system overall. It's always complicated when you're doing something for space, uh, one of the things that most people don't realize is every space uh, industry, every uh, everything that goes into space that is human, for humans, has to be triply redundant. What's that mean? That means that any system that is vital to human survival, it has to have three layers of redundancy. So give me an example with an these example, plants. An example, oh, with these plants, uh, I was gonna use a, the example of a spacesuit if that's okay. Go for it. <laughs> because that's one that NASA's actually published some stuff about. Okay. And there's a, there's a few interesting uh, examples of where it's not worked. Okay. So a spacesuit has multiple layers, uh, just like you would put multiple layers around your uh, hab on another planet to make sure that it's safe. And each of those layers needs to be uh, redundant. There's was a valve in one of the NASA spacesuits that uh, the Russians, when they did their analysis, they were like, that's only double redundant. And sure enough, about a short while later, it broke. And 
the water layer of the spacesuit, which keeps people cool, mm -hmm. uh, ended up flooding into the helmet oh, no. of one of the space one of the one of the astronauts, and he barely got back to the space station. Oh my God, that's so scary! Because he couldn't see, and he was worried that he wouldn't be able to breathe. Right. Because water sticks. Luckily, the water was sticking to the outside of the helmet. He couldn't see well, but it wasn't sticking to his face as much as it was to the helmet. Wow. So that's the reason it has to be triple redundant. So if we're thinking about plants and using mm -hmm. them as a source of oxygen, yes, we would. that might be the primary source we'd like to use, but then there would be these secondary and, and tertiary. tertiary backups. You'd have right. an oxygen tank and then maybe a hydrogen fuel cell or something that produces you would have oxygen. The, you would have the current, uh, the current systems that they have on the space station, for example, which uh, generate oxygen using water so you can break water into oxygen and hydrogen mm -hmm. so you can break it apart when you have solar energy and then you can actually recombine that later to recreate water it's a great way of storing energy nice. as long as you don't over pressurize the tanks <laughs> okay um that's that actually scary. how <laughs> apollo 13 uh oh, that sounded vaguely the, familiar yeah <laughs> uh, so yeah so you would uh, have a mechanical system you might have uh, two layers of mechanical and then you'd have the bio, bi biological system on top of that okay. uh, is the most likely scenario for a bioregenerative life support system or you would have multiple modules for the bioregenerative uh, the bio the, the plant-based system in addition to having your standard uh, mechanical system okay what what are some of the other considerations about growing plants in space I'm thinking you know nutrition, mm -hmm. psychology, I mean, are, are, are we feeding, are, are, are astronauts getting all the micro and macronutrients from the plants that we could be gardening in space, or is this more supplementary to their diet? And, and talk about the psychology okay. a little bit. Definitely. On a long-term, on a short-term mission, the primary benefit uh, for having a plant-based system is actually going to be uh, psychological. Hmm. Um, on a short-term basis, it's easy to make sure that you have the micro and macronutrients you need in um, prepackaged food, and the volume of food uh, increases basically exponentially as the duration of the mission goes mm. on. So for a short duration, you can send all the food you need. Having plants like they do on the space station just adds a little bit of zest. There's something that happens in the human brain when we see the color green, mm. uh, especially if we see like a living plant. There's just a relaxation that happens in pretty much everyone's brain that when that happens. It's one of the reasons why a lot of uh, hospitals or long-term stay facilities have gardens or have indoor plants uh, where you can go see them because it has a natural relaxation effect on the human body. On a long duration mission, that's where it gets harder to prepare enough food with the correct nutrients long term. Because you can last for six months with uh, varying levels of some of the micronutrients, especially. Uh, you may not be perfectly healthy, but if you're going for a year, two years, three years indefinitely, you're going to need something to supply those micronutrients in a easily accessible way. And our bodies most easily access uh, nutrients through our food. And the fresher it is, the better. 
there's a, definitely a psychological benefit to biting into a like popping something a fresh crunchy. Yeah, something <laughs> crunchy. I remember in my NASA experiment that I did, mm -hmm. where I was one of the crew members on a ground-based mission, we had the NASA diet and everything, um, I really, really got to missing having anything fresh. Yeah. Uh, everything was prepackaged, so it was either stewed or, like, we didn't have anything crunchy, uh, except for like a couple of crackers. Um, <laughs> there was actually this one uh, type of meal that they would give us, it was freeze-dried, like, freeze-dried vegetables and you're supposed to add water and then they become all soggy so instead what I would do is I would cut it open and I would just eat the crunchy yeah like the crunchy freeze-dried vegetables yeah. I'm like this is like eating potato chips <laughs> this is like eating a fresh more like eating a fresh vegetable I mean I feel like we can get that right we can get like dried snap peas and we can get yeah. like dried carrots like yeah, yeah. and it still and has a crunch to it it has that crunch yeah uh, and that was something I really missed and hmm. so when I figured out that I could do that I started eating uh, some of my freeze-dried meals that way um, and then I shared that information with one of my fellow people and they're like wait yes me too you're a genius <laughs> <laughs> So, so we tell, ended up doing that. So tell me what I'm looking at here. Why do we have one of these? Uh, what do you call? Actually, <laughs> tell me what you call these modules because I'm just gonna. Kill okay. It. So we we t we call them module one and two okay. or unit one and two. Okay. Uh, the unit over here that's pink, as you say, mm -hmm. is actually a combination of red and blue LEDs. Okay. Plants uh, primarily use red and blue light. Um, primarily red with a little bit of blue light which is why it's more pink mm -hmm. kind of a pinkish purple rather than just purple yeah because um, there's more red than blue uh, there's peaks those peaks in the electromagnetic spectrum of visible light are what the plants use during photosynthesis to generate the most amount of energy um, there's being a lot of research done in the uh, especially in the vertical farm and uh, indoor agriculture sphere on is white light or red and blue light or red and blue plus a little bit of infrared or what is the light spectrum that we should really be providing to plants because we want them to grow well and have be healthy and everything uh, red and blue tends to work really well uh, the other set of ones that we have it are warm white leds so Warm white, you're typically used to see hearing that term, I'm assuming when you're looking at light bulbs for your house. Mm -hmm. uh, you can get cool, you can get warm. That has to do with where it is on the electromagnetic spectrum. And so when pl plants are mainly concerned about uh, the light quality and quantity. So quality is with quality and stuff, is which, which spectrum is it and how much of it is there? So both of those have a huge impact. You need to make sure you have enough red and blue light uh, but you also need to make sure that there's enough of it, so enough photons are released. These are both LED systems. Are there advantages to either in terms of how the plants grow or in terms of how much energy is used to operate them? I mean, is there an efficiency in just red and blue? Or is it about the same with the full spectrum warm LED? Um, so that's actually one of the research areas that's ongoing. Awesome. Uh, there is evidence for both. Really? <laughs> Yeah, but one of the challenges in any sort of research is that you have to make you have to control for various variables, and sometimes, sometimes a study will lean towards one, and then you'll realize that 
they didn't control a particular variable the same as another experiment. Right. Yeah. So direct comparisons where their own light is the only difference can be very difficult um, because you need to make sure that it is actually the only difference. So um, that's one of the things that we're doing in here. We're getting good data on the difference between the two systems. We are the two systems do have a different light intensity though, which adds a mm. interesting factor there because we all we know that the higher light intensity increases yields. Right. So figuring out which what the difference between the two based on color versus intensity. Uh, we're still working on that one. Well, and it seems like there's a correlation that a higher light intensity, the plants will consume CO2 more quickly as they're photosynthesizing right. more because quickly, more which energy. means they're going to produce more oxygen. So could yes. that actually be a benefit in yeah, space? Yeah, the higher, the higher intensity is definitely a benefit. Uh, as long as you don't go too high, because if you get too high of intensity, plants tend to uh, try and protect themselves from mm -hmm. too much light. So you need to find the right balance for different How do they crops. protect themselves? Uh, so the leaves tend to curl under and they get, they basically just don't, uh, they, uh, they don't, um, they don't open up as much. Okay. So you can actually see the difference in the two chambers if you go up onto the thing. We might take a few pictures of how the leaves and the structure of the plant actually are different based on, we believe it's the intensity. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's such a delicate balance because it's it like, is. okay, on one hand, okay, so you increase the light intensity. So that takes more energy input to do that. And I don't know how big of a concern that is in it's space. It's a huge concern is in it? space. Cause you can't just like put out these big like solar panels and collect all the sunlight that you want. Okay, so think about the moon. How, you know how the moon waxes and wanes, right? Oh, okay. Yes. You end up with, what, two weeks of darkness? Unless you're on like the pole and have like something that's sticking out high enough that you can get a little bit of energy. <laughs> okay. From, from what, that's coming around the earth or maybe earth glow. Okay, fair. Um, so you're in shade for two weeks out of the, two weeks out of a month. So now and, you need a big battery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, keeping keeping uh, energy levels up is a challenge, and on Mars you actually have you don't have the problem of two weeks of darkness. You have the problem where you have the challenge. Let's say let's not use the word no problem. problems. No problems. <laughs> They're challenges. The challenge of the light density is much lower. The sun is radiating out, and the uh, density of the photons decreases exponentially the farther you get out from the sun. Okay. Uh, that's physics. Uh, so if you think about it, Mars is a lot farther out than Earth, which means that the intensity, the, the density of the photons is a lot lower when you get out to Mars, which means that you need a bigger solar panel to collect the same number of photons that you would here on Earth. And then you have to convert the photons to electricity, convert the electricity back into photons. That's not yeah. an efficient process. The most efficient processes I've seen um, for space systems so far have been maybe 28% effective. Wow. In that conversion of electrical energy back to photo, uh, of photons into electrical energy. And then LEDs, you then lose more going the other direction. And most of the losses on both ends are key. And then the efficiency of the plant itself and to use those And then you have the photons. efficiency of the plant to use those photons. So you actually end up with a, deep, a very small portion of the photons that you collect from your yeah. solar panel actually being absorbed into the plants. 
So dumb question, and there are no stupid, there are questions, no stupid questions. But why are we using lighting at all on Mars? Like, why not just take advantage of the sun like we would on Earth? Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one is uh, the pressure on Mars is one one hundredth of an atmosphere. It's okay. really, really low. <laughs> I'm trying to think of. You would depressurize. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, can it be a pressurized module? Well, then you have uh, one of the challenges we see in greenhouses, which is every layer of plastic or glass you put between the sun's rays and the plant decreases the amount of photons that get through. So we still have the same inefficiency problem. Okay. We also can't seal, oftentimes, glass or that is hard. plastic. Uh, as well as we could if we did a fully contained system. Okay. So, so and, and on the moon, obviously, we the could. twelve <laughs> day, or fourteen days, two weeks of yeah. no light. So, I mean, it's interesting just thinking about comparisons between Mars and the Moon, mm -hmm. and that these are really two different problems to solve. They in are multiple ways. Uh, this, the problems to solve that are different are the power generation. You can build the same system that would work in both if you make the assumption that you want to use a completely closed environment that doesn't use the external light. Um, and then you just have the power challenge. Either way, power is going to be a limiting factor. Whether it's you need bigger solar panels or you need a big battery to handle the, uh, the, two, the two weeks. Mm -hmm. um, so regardless of which way you look at it, it's going to be a lot of a lot of energy efficiency requirements. So basically, what, one of the things we want to find is where is the balance point between the energy coming into the system uh, with the resources in the system to get an acceptable amount of oxygen and food while limiting the amount of resources it takes to get back. Yeah. Because water and power are limited resources. And then, of course, crew time is also a limited resource. Right. I have to ask because, uh, you know, I come from HVAC and climate control. Uh, How the heck are you controlling the climate in these modules? And how, how would you do it in space? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's a bit of a challenge, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it's a challenge down here on Earth. I mean... <laughs> we haven't even figured out how to do it right down here, let alone up in space. So... In space, uh, we do have systems that work pretty well. Uh, I will tell you this, getting rid of uh, heat in a vacuum is a challenge. Mm. Uh, it mm. will be less of a challenge on the moon and Mars simply because instead of having to radiate heat out into deep space, meaning panels that are facing deep space, black panels facing deep space is how we pull energy away from the space station or from our satellites. Mm. So you have back, facing I didn't know the lack of space and that is where you radiate heat off so actually radiant cooling radiant cooling because you're in a vacuum cool. it's the only thing you can do it's basically it, it gets really complicated when you start doing vacuum uh dynamics vacuum dynamics <laughs> yeah so especially re heat transfer in a vacuum uh is a real challenge but you're looking at something that's so cold that it just wicks heat away but you have to face you have to get the heat to the place that's radiating them. Oh my gosh. So overheating is a real challenge in uh, orbit. 
on a planet it's less of a challenge because there is some atmosphere that can then use convect that can pull oh. the uh, that you can use convection stuff to pull okay. some of that energy away hmm. it's not just being radiated out into deep space interesting um, so i expect less problems with getting rid of heat uh on the moon and mars than okay. i do than, I, than we've seen in space however you also have then the opposite problem where it's getting too cool right that can <laughs> happen can too go away you have the problem of it can get too cool so a lot of this particular system is using is based off of a very standard hvac system uh, we take the and we take the air we dehumidify it and cool it and reintroduce it back into the system because the lights are actually our primary heat source they generate a lot of heat mm -hmm. Even LEDs. Uh, the LEDs. You should. The when we were using the high pressure sodiums, the data was even. Muddy. Oh my God! It was crazy. Uh, they were using water cooled high pressure sodiums, and yeah, it, it's a lot of heat. Uh, we're actually using water cooled LEDs in the white light chamber. Uh, How do you like those? I would prefer to have something that didn't require water cooling because it's an extra. It's an additional system which it adds a redundancy, which which uh, creates the necessity for an additional. Yeah. Uh, control because if that breaks down, then you have to put in another. Then it can overheat more easily. And does it also over... reduce the number of photons? It does, or the light intensity. Yeah. It basically pre puts a barrier between the light emitter diode, which is what LED stands for, and the uh, and the plants. So it puts a barrier similar to what you would just see if you put, say, if you put um, when you're seeing the sunlight go through yeah. the glass of a greenhouse. So it does reduce the amount of the light intensity when you have that. So ideally, we would put in a system that didn't require that because the more complexity in the system, the more likely it is to break. Where are you getting the water? The water is from the tap here in Tucson. Okay. <laughs> if you're in space, I mean, if is it people's in, uh, pee and sweat? I mean, is that that is that is the, the ideal? That okay. is idealized how you would do it. Okay. <laughs> What's the problem with that uh, theory? So the, the problem with that theory right now is that uh, we don't actually have one of these systems in space doing that. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, the water used in systems in space is basically the same water that's used in like the drinking or the gray water that's used for uh, cooking and stuff up there. So on the International Space, space Station, Station, they actually took the water up with them? Yes. They take the water up with them, and they 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 extract as much of it as possible and reuse it. They I think at ninety percent efficiency okay. with the mechanical system. That's pretty good. So ideally, what you would do is you would do for a fully regenerative bioregenerative life support system, you'd have that mechanical system that would pull out as much of the water as possible, and then you would take the brine left from that and run it through, say, a uh, a process to sterilize it to get okay. rid of any bacteria, etc. And then you would use that uh, to, jet, to mix your nutrients, uh, convert the ammonium and such it back into into something into nitrates that the plants can uptake. Cool. Similar to what you do in aquaponics. Yeah. Why? Where <laughs> does that other ten percent go? Uh, right now, it gets burnt up in the atmosphere when they do reentry of the CRV. Not CRV. Uh, I forget. Cygnus. Cygnus. Whichever ones burn up in the atmosphere, not the SpaceX ones. The resupply missions that burn up in the atmosphere on return. Yeah. That's where it goes. The other 10%. Yep. All the trash on the space station gets burnt up in the atmosphere. There's on trash? Re yeah. They're not reusing everything? 
they can't. If they don't bring it down for sampling, which they bring down on like the Dragon and the Soyuz, uh, there's sampling I guess capacity. they are taking samples, yeah, okay. If the, everything else gets stuck into the uh, resupply mission things, which are single use, and they, they plan the re-entry into the atmosphere so that the entire thing burns up and turns into plasma in the oh atmosphere due to the friction of re-entry. I, I'm not even going to ask where that goes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's bring it back. Um, so I how, do come from the space side. I know. Well, and, and that's actually the next question I want to ask you is you, you have all this experience with NASA and your interest in space and going up to space. How did you land on food and plant production? It's one of the areas that needs a whole lot of work to be at the level we needed if we actually want to found, have a base on the moon or a base on Mars. And it's an area that I've always been interested in. Yeah. I've always been interested in agriculture, always been interested in plants and animals. And so when I, came, when I uh, left my last startup with COVID, I, I was looking at what should I do next? Uh, what do I want to do next when I grow up? Want to grow yeah. up next? Uh, and I was looking for an option and bioregenerative life support is something I've been looking into and following the research on since I was 16. Wow. So when I realized that this program existed here and the Mars Luna Greenhouse, the Biosphere, it's actually Biosphere that brought me to the University of Arizona. Okay. And that's how I found out about all the programs here. I was like, that's, that's what I want to work on. Very cool. How did you find the Biosphere? Uh, well, I knew about Biosphere because I'd read about it and okay. the experiments and everything. And I was just trying to find a program and I Googled the Biosphere because I thought maybe something might be affiliated with it. And then I realized that the University of Arizona was affiliated with it. So I started looking at the programs there. Awesome. And now here I am. So who, who is on your committee? Who's, who are well, your major so professors? Far I, so far I have Dr. Kachira who runs the Controlled Environment Agriculture as my major professor. We're still building my committee. I've got a couple potentials, but nobody's signed on yet. So. Okay. Uh, shouldn't name names. <laughs> I gotcha, gotcha. So still building my committee, but I have time. I'm in my first year as a PhD student. Uh, not yet a PhD candidate. You have to finish your qualifying exam to claim that title. Uh, I guess so, yeah. So, student. You will be. I will. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, so, in just growing these plants here on Earth, um, simulating space, mm -hmm. what have you learned about growing plants? using hydroponics and these LED lights and this So system. I hadn't really done anything with hydroponics before I took this project on. Um, I had grown a lot of plants in soil, mm -hmm. but not really anything other than like starting seedlings in hydroponics type things. So I've learned a whole lot about how hydroponics works. Yeah. Um, it's been a lot of uh, catching up to do on the basic knowledge of how the systems work, why we do things the way we do them, uh, and then taking a look at why do we do them and are those reasons still valid when I go into a space seg segment. Um, Can you give an example? Uh, so an example, let's take, let's take the uh, actual nutrient film technique where you use gravity fed systems to have the water go down a channel and then drain out. That won't necessarily work. When you have globules yeah, so of water. In theory, what you'll need to do is have a higher flow rate of water and have pumps pushing it out and a pump on the drain sucking it in. Really? That's my theory. So I'd like to I'd like to look at that. Interesting. So 
That's just one example of how things are different. We do know plants grow in microgravity, therefore they will grow just fine in uh, lunar gravity, at least small plants. We don't know about larger plants because we've never grown anything larger than like lettuce or dwarf hmm. uh, varieties of like bok choy and stuff. Right. It will be very interesting to see how uh, the capillary action that pulls water from the roots up through the leaves and stuff actually works in lower gravity systems. We actually end up, we don't know if we'll end up with shorter plants or taller plants because of it. Oh, that's so interesting. It could totally <laughs> go either way, couldn't it? Couldn't it? it? Yeah. We, we don't have the data. We, nobody's done the tests. That seems like a pretty simple test, no? How are you going to get the, how will you get that gravity for that long of time without actually going there? Aren't there like gravity simulators? The closest we have are parabolic flights and suborbital flights. In a parabolic flight, you can get uh, 10 to 30 seconds of lunar gravity. Okay. That's not enough time. for an experiment, probably. Not for a plant experiment. It might be enough to do the test on, like, say, the hydroponic system. Okay. Or something like that. Wow. Uh, but it wouldn't be enough to do a plant growth experiment. Uh, and then you experience two Gs, and then you go back up and you do it again. Oh, my God. It's so much fun. <laughs> I believe um, you. <laughs> I have video on my Instagram and stuff of it. Uh, the uh, suborbital flights, you get microgravity for up to a couple of minutes on the top of the parabola before you re-enter the atmosphere. Okay. So you don't actually, it's really hard to get lunar gravity. You can get microgravity by going up into orbit, up on like the space station. Hmm. But without going to the other celestial body, it's almost impossible. We can't, we don't understand gravity enough to replicate yeah. it. Uh, we can do spin-based simulations. Okay. So in orbit, so in a microgravity situation, you could simulate lunar gravity for a longer period of time by spinning. However, because you're using a spinning force, you need a very large diameter item to be able to test what we were just asking about. Yeah. Because the smaller the diameter, the greater the difference between the uh, simulated gravity at the root zone and the leaves are. If the leaves are in the center where it's microgravity and the roots are at the bottom, are we actually testing something Yeah, valid? exactly, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, there's wow. a lot of complexity and there's a lot of challenges. So we can do component testing, we can do basics, but until we actually go there, we won't know which way it'll go. So what are you gonna do with all of this research? Or, or I mean, I know how this is gonna be applied, <laughs> but like, what do you wanna do after you graduate? I want to either work for NASA, for a company, or set up my own company to uh, build the biogenerative life support systems for NASA and SpaceX and whoever else is going. Hell yeah. That sounds awesome. So either work for one of them, do it myself, or yeah. Maybe all of the above. All of the above works for me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Megan, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It was really fun talking about plants in space. And I learned some great things here uh, during our conversation. Thanks. It's been great uh, being on the show. Thank you so much. And enjoy the rest of the short course. I'm really Will looking do. forward to it. Yeah. And um, yeah, I guess I'll see you tomorrow. I will see you tomorrow. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks. Bye.